Has anybody been keeping up with the Republican GOP debates here of late? Been quite an interesting show. Uh, I'm not trying to be partisan or political today. We are, we are citizens of the kingdom of God. We are citizens of another kingdom. So I don't get into politics, but this has been quite entertaining so far. Uh, particularly the debate between Donald Trump, the Donald, and Dr. Ben Carson. Interesting dialogue that they've had. You know, in this corner, you've got the man, the Donald, you know, rich beyond our imaginations, who builds a tower and puts his name plastered across the side of it. This guy brimming with self-confidence and pride. And many of you know he is a winner, right? Win at all costs. In fact, in The Apprentice, the TV show, he's, named, he's known for what line? You're fired, right? You're fired. Mr. Trump recently was asked about his relationship with God. Do you ever ask for forgiveness from God? He said, you know, I'm not sure I have. He said, I just go and try to do a better job the next time. He added, if I do something wrong, I just try and make it right. I don't bring God into the picture. I just don't. Interesting. Like most good businessmen, he sees a problem in his life and he attacks it with his own ingenuity. He is, after all, the Donald, right? In the other corner, you have Dr. Ben Carson, who grew up with an illiterate mother, who struggled on the mean streets of Detroit, and uh, ended up becoming one of the most decorated pediatric neurosurgeons in the world at 33 years old, becomes the director at John Hopkins Hospital of Pediatric Neurosurgery. And his specialty is the groundbreaking science of separating conjoined twins. Two very successful men, right? But two very successful men with different outlooks on life. When Ben Carson was asked about his belief in God, he said this, He said, probably the biggest thing is, I realize where my success has come from. And I don't in any way want to deny my faith in God. In Anaheim, he said, you know, one of my favorite Bible verses is Proverbs 22.4. And it says, by humility and fear of the Lord come our riches and honor and life. And that's a very big part of who I am, he said. Through humility and fear of the Lord of the Lord. Interesting to see two very successful people, two brilliant people, two two people who think outside the box in their particular fields, and yet they're grounded on very different principles. I want you to keep those two people in mind as we go through the gospel today. Because we're in Mark's gospel, if you've got your Bibles or if you want to look at the Pew Bible, we're in chapter 9 today. But what I find most curious is that Dr. Ben Carson, in the latest polls, only has about 19% of your confidence, and the Donald has 34%. And what that says to me about Americans is we don't like humility very much. We don't like to stand under. We don't like to, to humble ourselves in the face of other people. Instead, we love a parade, right? Isn't that the slogan? We like glitz and glamour. Uh, we like superstars and supermodels the bottom line is we'll choose Miley Cyrus 
over Tim Tebow any day. That's America, my friends. Why do we love Trump? Why do we love Cyrus? Because it's this. This is the key. Because it's never been and it never will be in our hearts our natural inclination to love that which is humble and meek. We don't have it in us. Our fallen nature makes us want to be somebody, to have the lights shining on our faces, to put our handprints in the, the, the walk of fame somewhere so that everyone will admire our achievements. That's who we are by our fallen nature. Guess what? Human nature's not changed in 2,000 years, and it won't change in 20,000 years. Look at Mark chapter 9, as we have those two people in mind, Trump and Carson. Jesus, remember, has just fed 5,000 people in chapter 6, and in chapter 8, he feeds 4,000 more. You can capsulize it by saying his celebrity is on the rise, right? His popularity has never been as big. People are taking auto, asking him for autographs. They're taking selfies with Jesus. They're reaching out just to touch the hem of his garment so that they'll be healed. I mean, it sounds every bit like Elvis or the Beatles, doesn't it? They probably want to put his robe in Hard Rock Cafe over in Jerusalem somewhere for everybody to adore. Remember last Sunday, though? He broke the news to them. Life in my kingdom is not going to operate that way. He tells Peter in chapter 8, verse 31, that the Son of Man must suffer. He must suffer. And indeed, he will go to Jerusalem, but not to have his robe in the Hard Rock Cafe. He will go to Jerusalem to suffer and die for the sins of the world. We all know how Peter reacted, right, last week? Same way we all probably would. God forbid it. I'll not allow this to happen. It'll never happen to you, Jesus. Now look at chapter 9, verse 30. This is the second of his passion pronouncements in chapter 9. In verse 30 it says, And they went on from there, and they passed through Galilee, and he, Jesus, did not want anyone to know. Why is he being so secretive today? For goodness sake. Here's the deal. He had been in Tyre and Sidon and the Decapolis. He'd had 5,000 people and 4,000 people. He wanted this intimate opportunity with his 12 disciples to fully uh, expose what life in the kingdom will look like for followers of Jesus. Verse 31, he tells them, for he was teaching his disciples and he says to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they're going to kill him. And when he's killed after three days, he will rise again. So there he's saying, life in the kingdom is going to be difficult. I'm going to a cross. If you want to get the gospel right, it will be through humility and humbling yourself to become servant of me and servant of the world. So the rabbi himself says that that's my destiny. Look at verse 32. They still don't get it, even though this is the second time Jesus has said it's got to happen. In verse 32, it says, But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. Now, who does that? If you have your rabbi, your teacher, tell you something that you don't understand, who just says, well, I'm afraid to ask? Of course, you ask a follow-up question. You ask for the teacher to give a, a little bit more elaboration on the point they're trying to make. But they're afraid to ask Jesus what this meant 
about his suffering death. Why would that be? Well, they're not afraid of Jesus particularly. They've already said some really dumb stuff already in the gospel. And he has always met them with humility and mercy and patience. He's never jumped on them. But here, they're afraid to ask Jesus because they're afraid to plumb the depths of what it means to have a suffering Messiah. They don't like that pronouncement at all. They don't want to deal with suffering and death. They're too preoccupied with what it means to be CEO for the royal king. With what it means to be CFO in Jesus International Industries. You see, they're fighting amongst one another about who's going to be first in the kingdom. And Jesus is talking about death and being a servant to all. He catches them red-handed, of course, we know that. Look at verse 33 to 35. They finally came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the road, on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way they had argued with one another about who was going to be greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, If any of you would be first, he must first become last of all and servant of all. Verse 35, you've got to become last and servant if you're going to be first in the kingdom. Totally topsy-turvy, totally different from anything we would ever imagine. It's not our natural inclination to think about life that way, but it's the way of the kingdom of Jesus. You see, verse 35 had to stick in their crawl. I mean, they've left family and friends and occupations behind for a three-year teaching ministry with Jesus, and suddenly he's saying, not will you not be promoted, But you're going to be demoted. You've got to be servant of all. Jesus is telling them something very mind-blowing. If you want to be first, you've got to start by being last. And they still don't get it. Should we be surprised? Remember Adam and Eve? Well, what was their deal? Okay, you got this luscious fruit. It's beautiful. God said, don't touch it. Be obedient. Be submissive. Be humble. Stay in my word. Trust me in this. And then Satan, the evil one, comes alongside. And he says, God doesn't want you to touch that fruit because then you'll get a promotion. Then you're going to be like him and you're going to see good from evil in the way that he sees good from evil. You're going to get a promotion. And what did they do? They went for the promotion. Now once things calm down in Genesis chapter 11, people kind of regather themselves after the flood. And what happens? They're on the plain of Shinar. And the inhabitants of the world are gathering together. And in chapter 11, verse 4, it says, They said to themselves, Come, let us build our cities with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we can make a name for ourselves. You see, that's our nature. We want our handprint on the walk of fame so that everybody will adore us and think well of us. But Jesus is here saying, My life for yours, my suffering for you. You are of more importance than I am, and I go to the cross for you. Is it any wonder why in Philippians 2, Paul would say to his, his, uh, his community at that point, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count mothers more significant than yourselves. Have this mind about you that was yours in Christ Jesus, that though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, and being found in human likeness, 
becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Remember those two images, Donald Trump, Ben Carson. David Hawkins came out with a book years ago called Power Versus Force. And he said in that book, basically, that through your intellect, through your will, through your power, you can accomplish all the goals you've ever set for yourself if you're strong enough. That's right-handed power. Martin Luther years ago said this. He said that the power of the kingdom is left-handed power. You see, right-handed power says to 10,000 angels, come down and destroy the evil one. Left-handed power says, I'll take the cross, and I'll humbly submit to the Father, and I'll give my life for yours. You see the difference? Right-handed power versus left-handed. The gospel is always left-handed power. And there is no better training ground for the gospel than in your marriage. In your marriage. I'd say that 99% of all marriages that break up break up because either one or the other person or both are trying to wield right-handed power in the relationship. They are trying to win the fight. Those of you who've been married, you know, that first big fight that you have. You stand toe-to-toe and face-to-face, and you want to be victorious. You want to wear the crown. You want to make sure that you are vindicated, that you are right, and that she knows it, or that he knows it in the end. And you want to stand over him or her and gloat after it's all done. Marriages don't survive that way, do they? The gospel doesn't teach us to treat our spouses that way. The gospel teaches us to give up the crown, not to to try and be victorious, not to be defeated, but to give up our right to be victorious because Jesus gave up his right to be victorious because he loved us as a servant so we might love others in humble service. I'll give you an example. I'm counseling a guy right now whose wife has cheated on him, and he's not from this congregation, not even from Somerville, but she has hurt him, and they have a five-year-old child at home, and they love each other. They're both Christians. They're both seeking God's forgiveness and each other's forgiveness, but he keeps texting me and calling me and saying things like, I just can't do it. I can't let it go. All I can do is, is picture them together, and I can't let go of my pride. And he said, all I want to do is make them pay for what they've done to me and my family. I want to make them pay. I want to stand over them and gloat and be victorious in this. I called him back and said, listen, I want you to write down all the sins that you've ever committed against God. Things done and left undone. Every time you've broken God's heart, I want you to write it down. You'll not have enough books in your library to fill it. And then I want you to think about Jesus. Instead of making you pay and standing over you as a warlord, he chose to submit himself to death on a cross and become a servant lord. And I said, with regard to your wife, if you think that Jesus has torn up all those sins for you on the blood of the cross of Calvary, and he's done that in service for you, what now are you called to do for your wife? Can you forgive her, knowing how much you've been forgiven? Jesus came not as a warlord, but as a servant lord. He gave his life for us. And the Bible says this. It says in Hebrews uh, chapter 8, verse 12, and I told him this, that the Lord is merciful toward our iniquities, and that when we bring them before Jesus, he will remember our sins no more. 
Isn't that a beautiful idea? That through the cross, he remembers our sins no more. Psalm 103 says that when we bring our sins to Jesus, he separates them from us as far as the east is from the west. And I told the guy, if Jesus has done that for you, can't you love and serve your wife in that same way? You see, the gospel is the place where the, the, the beliefs of the church hit the road in marriage. Marriage is a great training ground for the gospel. In fact, I always find it interesting when people hit Ephesians chapter 5 and people get so caught up on verse 22 where it says, Wives, submit to your husbands. And people are like, oh, no, 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 no submission. I'm not standing under anybody. Nobody's going to be authoritative over me. So we get all caught up with that. But then we don't say anything about verse, um, the, the rest of that chapter, verse 25 and following. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. You see, that's almost the greater calling, the more difficult one, right? He gave every ounce of his love, gave up every ounce of his glory so that he could become servant and die on a cross for us. You see, the world operates like Donald Trump. I want a Lord over you. I want to have power over you. In fact, Jesus will later say in Matthew 25, he said, the Gentiles lord over their people, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. Whoever seeks to be great among you will be servant one to another. Not right-handed power, but left-handed power. I want to give you a quick test to see if you've got the gospel right, okay? If you've got this idea of servanthood right. If the gospel's fully in your heart and has taken root, here's how you know. It's when somebody else gets the glory and you're glad for them. It's when somebody else gets an award that you think is rightfully yours and you're okay with that. It's when somebody else gets complimented for something and your work goes unnoticed, but that's okay too. It's when you are happier for somebody else's blessings than you are for your own blessings. You see, when we get to that point of service and humility... Our marriages take on a different light. Our church takes on a different light. Our workspaces take on a different light. It's left-handed power that redeems the world, not right-handed power. And on the night before he died for us, Jesus took off his cloak and put him around him the servant's um, towel. And he knelt at the, friend, at the feet of his disciples and he began to wash out the dirt and the grime from their feet and began to prepare them to take the Lord's Supper. And guess what? There's Peter once again. The same guy who said, Lord, prevent it. You're not going to die. I cannot have you humble yourself in that way. Is the same guy who says to the Lord on that night, God forbid it. You'll never wash my feet. I'll never walk as a servant. And what does Jesus say? Unless you let me do this for you, Peter, you have no place in me. Unless you allow me to show you an example of what it looks like to be a servant in the kingdom, about how the whole thing is going to be turned upside down, unless you let me show you, you're never going to get it. And you're never going to be able to walk in my love. So finally he submitted. And so when you come to the cross today, when you come to take communion, imagine the Lord, the God of all creation, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, kneeling at your feet, washing the dirt and grime from your feet and saying, if you don't do this for others, you have no place in me. 
Jesus said, you gotta, if you want to be first, you're going to become last. In that we find not right-handed power, but left-handed power. And church, that is the power to love those who are unlovable, to forgive those who are unforgivable, and to walk humbly before your Lord. And if you want it, it's there for you. Jesus is reaching out this morning. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, if in any way we have taken this life and sought to lord over other people, to our glory, to bring light to, to us and to who we are and to our pride, forgive us this morning, dear Lord. We want to walk in the way of Jesus, the one who died for us, the one who gave his life for us. Not my life, but my life for you, is what he said. So help us become servants of one another. Help us to humble ourselves, that the last shall be first and the first shall be last. Help us to be last, that we might serve others. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.